This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. You know, tragic things often happen to us. One day we can be experiencing a most precious and glorious moment. And within seconds, our lives can be drastically changed forever. I ask, how do you carry on during these times? How can you overcome the hurt of losing a loved one? What do you do when the hurt comes? Well, this is the reason I am here today to share with you my story of how I learned how to live beyond my tragedy. In October of 1970, I married a great young man. As a matter of fact, we were both very young when we married. During our marriage, I would give birth to two wonderful children. One boy, Baswana, and one girl, Mitzi. Mitzi was our oldest, and she had this funny laugh. It was the kind of laugh that when you heard it, would make, you, would make you laugh, too. Our children were brought up on the west side of Chicago. One place in particular that stands out in my mind was our first apartment. One night as we would come home to our apartment, we would find the hallway entrance that led to the first floor dark. The bulb had been broken. So we carried our children up the stairs to the first floor in the darkness. As we attempted to open the door, we would find that the lock was broken as we were freely pushed open the door. All of our belongings were lying on the floor. We had been robbed. We were faced with having to make a decision on this night. Would we stay and face the challenge that is now set before us? Or would we continue or would we leave and go back to Mama's house? We decided to stay, as we would continue to stay amidst other challenges that we would face later in our lives. Because that is what you do when you face challenges in your life. You stay and you stand. Because if you don't stand for something, you would often fall for anything. My husband and I would later move to the North Austin area of Chicago. Living here was much better for us. By this time, my kids had started school, and my husband and I would become very active parents. We were volunteering our time in the classroom selling taffy apples and other things that 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 what active parents often do. There were many times and days and nights of busy schedules. Once my children had both graduated high school, my son went off to pursue his career, and my daughter would go join the military branch of the Navy. My husband and I were now able to enjoy our lives as free parents, with our children now all grown up. So we moved to the suburbs of Palos Hills, just he and I. I was working, he was working, we were coming home to sharing daily conversations with each other. Just the two of us. We had moved into a residence that allotted us lots and lots of living space. We were actually dating again. 
We had been living in the house for about a year or so before I would receive a call from my daughter asking me if she could, if, if she could come and stay with us for a while. And so my daughter moved in with us, my husband and I, into our new residence. Well, we would go on to, she would go on to pursue a career in nursing. She became a great certified nursing assistant working various jobs in this field. However, during the course of this time, she would become pregnant with her first child. So in August of 1995, my daughter would give birth to a daughter. Around the same time that my husband and I were celebrating our 25th year anniversary, the baby was born, as a matter of fact, two weeks prior to our anniversary. So not only were we celebrating our marriage, but we were also celebrating the birth of our new grandchild. Life was truly good. Many times I would find myself babysitting my granddaughter with my daughter working and starting school. I remember her always saying to me, Ma, you are the best babysitter. She knew how I valued being a grandmother because I would often say that whenever I would become a grandmother, I would be the best grandmother. So here lies a moment in my time that I could be that grandmother. A year would pass and my daughter would inform us, my husband and I, of a second pregnancy when her daughter was only one. And though my husband and I had always looked forward to her being married first, she would tell us that her relationship had proven to be stressful. So we accepted this pregnancy with open arms as well. We looked forward to the birth of our second grandchild, being born of our daughter, a child that would laugh out loud, much like she did. But in February of 1997, things would change the course that the next moments in our life would take. Because during this time, Missy would return home from the hospital after receiving an ultrasound, complaining of having complications with her breathing. So moments after she got into the house, she would go upstairs to her room, taking her daughter with her. She loved that little girl very much. I started to prepare tea and soup for her. Then suddenly I would hear a scream coming from my bedroom, from her bedroom upstairs. Mom, I can't breathe. I immediately ran to her before calling for an ambulance. When the ambulance would arrive, the paramedics would administer oxygen before taking her to the hospital. While they had her body on the stretcher, I remember seeing her lying there, faintly smiling back at her daughter and I as we stood in the doorway of the house. I touched her face before she was placed in the ambulance. Little did I know that this would be the last time that my daughter would ever grace the presence of our home ever again. Once we arrived, once we arrived at the hospital, my husband and I would stay for hours before coming home, only to return the next day to more gruesome reports of her condition. The doctor decided that they would induce her labor and take the baby, though my daughter was only seven months pregnant. This, they said, would be, make it easier on her breathing. So on February the 24th, my daughter would give birth to a two-pound, 13-and-a-half-ounce baby boy. 
Once the baby had been delivered, I would rush to the recovery room to see her, being overjoyed that she had given birth to a son. However, as I would arrive there, I would see several doctors standing around her bed, waving to me to go back, go back. My heart seemingly fell into my stomach. We would remain at the hospital for hours before finally going home at the doctor's request. Our bodies felt drained and in need of much rest. But even after getting home, I remember my husband and I were sleeping shifts. I would awake to see my husband on his knees praying while shedding tears in his hands. Then while I would sleep, I would awake to the phone ringing. And when I would answer, the voice on the other end of the, of the phone would convey to me these words. Get to the hospital as quick as possible. Your daughter's condition is deteriorating. We arrived at the hospital only to see her body lying there upon her bed, motionless. It appeared that she was just sleeping. The laughter that I would often remember her by had been reduced to just a simple smile upon her face. But it was a beautiful smile that I would always remember because I could still hear that crazy laugh that she would often have. The ride home from the hospital was stressful for my husband and I as the quietness would fill the space of the car. We were both saddened and devastated by her death. But something happened as we were sitting at the stoplight. We would experience this sudden breath of fresh air flowing through the window with a sweet-smelling aroma that would, off, that would also fill the space of the vehicle. We both looked at each other and agreed that this was the spirit of our daughter visiting with us on the last time, allaying Alaska by. By the time my husband and I had become committed had become committed to raising our daughter's two children. We wanted to give them the life that we knew that she would have given them if she had lived. We also were committed to raising them to experience having two parents. The things that came along with the commitment was not easy for us. After all, we were becoming new parents again after all of these years. Her son was born a preemie. Therefore, he had to spend time in the hospital after his birth. It was about a month before he came home to live with us. I would visit him often when he was in the hospital, watching this little face starting, startling me, which showed through the incubator. I was shaking in my boots every time that I would visit him. The nurses that, that was training me for my sessions would, would teach me a class by telling me, if he turns blue, do this. And if he turns red, do that. I was terrified to death. Not of the baby, but of myself. I just didn't want to hurt him because he was still so very small. I thought that just by picking him up, I would break something. However, the days would come when I would become, it would become easier and easier for me. I would experience both children growing up fast, much like my children did. So in about a two-month period, my husband and I was able to return to our church, where we would receive great support and encouragement from church members, family, and friends. Before long, three years would have passed, 
as my daughter's death was still vivid in my mind. I would often wonder why her life had to end at such a young age, being that she was only 27 years old when she died. Then I began researching the Bible. I even started a Bible study in my home. This was an activity that I had always enjoyed. During During the time that I was searching the scriptures, I found myself also writing poetry. Something else that I would also do and enjoy doing in my pastime. I had several poems published and I had written that I had written. The writings freed my spirit and gave me a sense of calm. I would go on to publish several other pieces of poetry and would aspire to produce an entire book of poetry to publish. My husband would become ordained as a deacon in our church and as a result of this, he decided to pursue one of his long-time dreams to visit the motherland of Africa. So in 2002, he would visit Kenya, a place that he had longed to go for his beautiful landscapes and vast countryside of various safari animals. During the the time that he traveled there, he had visited several churches as well, learning that most of them had only one Bible to a church. So on his return home, he would tell me of his journey and of the need of, of the Bibles in Kenya. We started a project in our church to collect Bibles for the churches of Kenya. We collected over 2,000 Bibles in this project through donations from people and churches who would support our cause. We both returned to Kenya to distribute the Bibles that we had collected and sent to Kenya. However, upon our arrival, we discovered that the Bibles had not yet arrived. So we asked our guide if some orphan shelter that we could do some sort of missions work while we were there waiting on the Bibles. The first shelter home that we took, that he took us to, was located in Ngong Hills. This facility was ran by a lady named Mary. Mrs. Mary, as I would call her, showed us around this facility where she, that was overcrowded. The space in the facility that only had ample enough space for 60 to 90 children was filled to its capacity with 120 children. There were several bunk beds in, in a small space. Many of the children lacked the things that they needed. Some of them walked up on the ground wearing no shoes at all. The spaces that were to be for classroom space for the small children who did not attend secondary school were dark and muddy. They were mud floors. The water was scarce. There was not enough water for them to even wash their hair. Even the girls that had hair, they couldn't wash their hair, so they had to cut it short so that it would prevent certain diseases of the scalp. I had watched while one of the teachers in the classroom would take one pencil and break it into three pieces and share it with three children. They would use a razor blade as the pencil sharpener. A small boy child was only a few days old, had been brought into the facility while we were there. His body had been placed into a bush country by his mother who was told by her parents that they could not afford to feed that child. The baby's body had been partially eaten by ants and left to die. He had been discovered by some women walking alongside the road. My husband and I paid for the baby's medical, which was about $100. 
Before returning home, we would sponsor the child along with 12 other children which were in need of help. Children like Junie, whose mother had committed suicide after learning that she had AIDS. She would leave Junie's body on the railroad tracks. However, Junie was rescued. And Brian. Brian, who never knew his father and whose mother had died of the HIV virus, upon learning that he was infected with the virus and being teased by his children at the shelter, Brian walked into a room, stood up on a table, and attempted to take his life. Brian, too, was rescued by one of the staff. Brian resides at the Fossick Shelter Home in Kenya. My husband and I returned home to find sponsorship for the remaining children who resided at the Simmerville Shelter Home in Kenya. Our goal was that all the remaining children receive sponsorship as well. In the commitment, we started the Fossick Organization, which stands for Friends of Sheltered Children in Kenya. The Fossick Organization had gone on to help many children in Kenya, children like Charity, to name a few. Charity had dreams of becoming a lawyer when we first met her. Charity is now attending law school through the help of, that, we, that she received through the Fossick Organization. And Agnes. Agnes, who was able to attend a trade school to upgrade her skills in typing and business management through Fossick. And even me, I was helped because through helping children like my grandchildren and the other children who were in need, I was able to go on to publish my first completed book of poetry that you can find in this library. The book was published in 2006. So yes, I'm here to say that tragic things does happen to us. Sometimes our life experiences can almost be unbearable. And we do lose loved ones. But you know, light does shine at, at the end of the darkest of our circumstances. A light that is so bright, it oftentimes blinds us. But I believe that this blindness that we experience allows us to really open our eyes to see what our true purpose is. And that is to give life a new hope through our helping others who are in need amidst tragic times. Now I would like to recite to you this poem that I have written as a way of shining my light upon you, upon you with my poetry. Amidst the tragedy. Amidst tragic times, they came in the light, the numbers being that of near nine to many, as they traveled in the distance of the night, with eyes that were fading and faces that were seemingly worn. They too were awaiting upon lifted spears that had been torn. Standing on bended knees, they were praying for many of the ones who were wounded in their battles, like me. I shall never forget the night that they were being brave and astoundingly free, helping us to stand and truly see the light again as it would shine at the end of our tunnel amidst our tragic times. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.